My father was a lot of terrible things, but what he had was an insane work ethic, and he taught me the measure of, of hard work and what that meant, and how many people you showing up for or not showing up for, it affects, so I get that. You're listening to Skip Intro with me, Krista Smith. It's September 9th, 2022, and I'm preparing to meet Tyler Perry for an interview about his latest film, A Jazz Man's Blues, premiering at the Toronto International Film Festival. The first thing to arrive is not Perry, but his seating setup, two tall, extremely comfortable director's chairs that replace the white couches we've previously been using. Upon his arrival, Perry tells me that ever since he had an interview chair collapse under him, he always comes prepared. So exciting. First of all, you brought your own chairs. So I said to my team, how you do one thing is how you do all things. Yeah. That's why you are so successful. <laughs> you travel with your own chairs. Well, because I sat in one of those oh, yeah. during a press and it went right through it. Yeah, went right through it. Right. I'm, like, I'm not using these anymore. I meant what I said. Perry is famous for his attention to detail, his unbridled work ethic, and savvy business mindset. That's how he got to where he is today, at the top of an entertainment empire built upon 1,600 episodes of television, 25 movies, 20 stage plays, and Tyler Perry Studios, a 330-acre property in Atlanta complete with 12 sound stages and custom sets. He's also an actor, musician, best-selling author, and philanthropist. The list really does go on and on. All that being said, it's difficult to qualify how deep Perry's reach within the entertainment industry goes. He's not only famous for creating his own path, but also for deeply influencing those around him, jumpstarting the acting careers of people like Tessa Thompson, Lance Gross, Jill Scott, and Mary J. Blige, and also for reinvigorating the career of the late, great Cicely Tyson. But in order to fully understand and appreciate Tyler's story, you have to start at the beginning. He was raised in New Orleans by his mother and an abusive father figure. Around the age of 20, Perry, who had been a longtime Oprah fan, saw a segment discussing the therapeutic benefits of writing. He became fascinated with the concept, channeling his emotions into letters to himself. Those letters would become the inspiration for his first play, I know I've been changed. Although the play failed to attract an audience, Perry refused to give up, working tirelessly to raise money and support. At one point, he resorted to living in his car, not far from where Tyler Perry Studios now exists. Success finally found him after the run of his second play, I Can Do Bad All By Myself, which introduced the world to his character, Medea, who Perry himself played. The play's popularity eventually led to the production of his first feature film, Diary of a Mad Black Woman, which was number one at the box office on opening weekend. As we settle into our director's chairs and begin rolling audio, it strikes me that the film I'm here to talk to Perry about was written in 1995, long before he experienced any kind of financial or commercial success. This period in Perry's life was pivotal, because it was the first time he had written a screenplay. It's a beautiful film, and I'm excited to share our conversation with you all now. This is very exciting because not only am I doing a podcast with Tyler Perry, but we're also um, filming it. 
So now I really have proof of life that proof I was life. with I was with you, talking to you and filming you, but it is um, such a thrill to meet you. To me, you are beyond a unicorn. You are such a special human for everything that you've been able to accomplish. And I can go down the list like, yes, of course, writer, director, actor, producer, philanthropist, mogul, like you changed the business. What you did in Atlanta with your studio, I mean, it's incredible. But you changed the business, whether you knew it or not. And that kind of confidence, or was it confidence? Was it just one foot in front of the other? Was it just a necessity? But now everything happens out of Atlanta. Atlanta is the coolest city in the world because of you. And That's a lot. I appreciate that. I appreciate it's true, that. though. It yeah. really is. I mean, one by one by one by yeah. one, you built this. You built it. Yeah, I don't, I don't, it was definitely out of necessity, but I never thought about it in, in the vein of, okay, let's do something special, let's do something incredible. I was just like, there's a need here. I have a huge audience who really wants to be fed, who wants content that speaks directly to them. So that was the focus. And out of that uh, focus and their adoration and their support, everything else just grew. And I have this twin brain that has to satisfy each side. One is very much an artist who wants to write and direct and, and do things like, like that. And the other is, is a producer and a businessman who is watching the bottom line. So they both work in concert to make sure that uh, the vision is pushed forward. So, Do you have a yin and yang with the two sides? And sometimes... The, the producer always wins. The, <laughs> when it comes to the money, it always wins. Like, that's a, it's almost like I'm having this crazy conversation with myself. Like, wow, that was a beautiful scene you just wrote. This side's going too expensive. Cut that back. Got to figure out something else there. So, yeah. yeah. Right. That's something that you actually bring up, something that people don't actually think about when they're watching a movie. Just mm. the average uh, film goer about oh, this scene has to be good because it's just going to be too expensive. Yeah. You know, people yeah. just love what they see. Okay, so a jazz man's blues. Let's talk about it. This is, now keep me honest on this, but from what I read, this was the first screenplay you ever wrote in yeah. 1995, right? Yeah. Is that correct? 1995. Yeah. that's right. That's right. And you had, you had, really come to your voice a little bit later, right? You weren't sure what you were gonna do. And is it true that that you watched an Oprah episode and she kind of unleashed something in you about like writing as therapy? And yeah, yeah. I was probably the only boy in my school running home to watch Oprah every day at three o'clock because she was, first of all, she looked like she could be my aunt mm -hmm. or sister and the wisdoms that she was speaking, I was just like, where is this? I, I, was, I was just on the edge of my seat at every show. There was always something that, helped me to want to be better. So she was a great, great inspiration. Mm -hmm. yeah. In 1992 or 91, I think it was, she said something about it being cathartic to write things down. And that's when I started journaling and found, mm -hmm. you know, using different characters' names, because I didn't want people to know that I was talking about the things that I had experienced at the time. And it was, they were all handwritten notes. I wish I could find those notes today, but mm -hmm. you know, years of, of homelessness, struggling, keeping up with things was tough. But but that's where it's, it started for me, that struck a chord mm -hmm. and writing things down and understanding that there was a power in that. And that first uh, journal became my first play. I know I've right. been changed, yeah. yeah. Right, and so what made you think, okay, I'm gonna go from this theater space yeah. and now I'm gonna write a script? I, I didn't think of it in a sense of, or first of all, I didn't really know the difference at the time between mm -hmm. What a, what a stage play looks like, and, it's, and I don't even think there was final draft then, to, to you know. <laughs> no, be able to be, there was no final draft Yeah, then. to be able to walk <laughs> you through it. So, but but um, 
I was moved seeing uh, an August Wilson play, well, half of it, because I had to sneak in at intermission because mm -hmm. I couldn't afford to get in. And when the people would come out and smoke and the patrons would go back in, mm -hmm. I'd well, go back in with them and see the second half. And I had a chance to meet him at an after party at a little cafe, rainy night in Georgia. I, I, I can't make this up. And he was extremely encouraging. I thought the mo I thought it was seven guitars, but I think it may have been two trains running. One mm -hmm. one show I saw of his that really moved me, and he was really inspiring. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so then you're just like, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna write this. Yeah. Yeah. Went home and started writing, and and these characters started speaking to me. I just I heard, you know, he says his name was Bayou. That's how they talked to me. I'm Bayou, and, th mm -hmm. and that's Leanne. And growing up in New Orleans, you know, and walking from end to end of Bourbon Street, every kind of music was represented there. So that mm -hmm. was the soundtrack for my life. So as I'm writing this at the time, jazz is everywhere, mm -hmm. you know, in my mind. And that's, that's how it all came to be. Mm -hmm. So that's 1995, and now yeah. we're 2022, and yeah. it's premiering in Toronto. So yeah. you, it's not like you haven't done a lot between in those two decades that yeah. follow. But what finally brought this to made this happen as a you know I, picture? I, well, for a very long time, I was very worried about the bottom line because as I knew that as a creator, you don't get many flops and to try, mm -hmm. take a risk at a period piece was very difficult especially many years ago mm -hmm. and then and then add to that being a black man in the business my chances of success after having a string of flops was a lot less so i wanted to focus on the right time so i mm -hmm. held it as I was focusing on the things that would work and grow the business. And I held it and I held it and held it. And then as of late, watching uh, this assault on American history, mm -hmm. black American history, uh, banning of books, the watering down and trying to homogenize slavery, all of those things have really uh, spoken to me. And mm -hmm. I thought, you know, now's the time to tell this story because these kind of things happen very often and nobody talked about mm -hmm. it. Yeah. Well, you're... The movie's fantastic, Thank you. and like I said earlier, it, it um, I had so much, I had so many different feelings and experiences in watching the film, which I loved. And a giant part of it, obviously, is the music. Yeah, it is. It takes you through the time period. Mm -hmm. It is the undercurrent of some of the more uh, emotional scenes and some of the levity as well. Yeah. How did you get that team together? You have Terry Blanchard. You have like Ruth B. It's like mm -hmm. a dream squad. Yeah. Of people. I tell you, the beauty of it is is the script. The script spoke to so many people. Even back in ninety, maybe early two thousand. I bought it to Debbie Allen to, mm. when she was at DreamWorks. I think this timeline may be wrong, but but she she was at DreamWorks and she wanted to be a part of it. And I sent the script to Terrence. He read it. I sent the script to Ruth B. And, and I said, you know, there's this, I, I keep hearing paper airplanes and she wrote a beautiful song. Mm. So all of these people, there's something on the page that spoke to the artists in them that helped them to help me make it what it is. Mm -hmm. And how is that for you control-wise? Like, how is that oh, collaboration? Yeah, even though I've written many songs for my yeah. plays and for a couple of the movies that I've done, no, this very much was a specialty that I didn't know very much about. And I wanted to hear other people's interpretation of what they felt. So it was all about the script. I wouldn't even tell them what the script is about. I'd just read this and tell me what it says to you. And they'll call me back, oh, I'm hearing, I'm hearing a solo sax in this area. I'm hearing, you know, a timpani. And there's just all these wonderful things that we talk Talked about. I was like, okay, mm -hmm. yeah, you're the one. <laughs> you yeah, got it. You're the one. You had a dream cast back yeah. in the day that included Halle Berry, yourself as yeah. a plain Bayou. Big dream, big dream. Big, you know, on Will Smith. Oh yeah, yeah. Diana Ross. <laughs> this is what we're gonna do. So Ben Kingsley. This is the cast for the Jazz Men's Blues. Yeah, yeah. So how 
now we have a, a brand new cast and some real standouts here. Uh, obviously, Soleil Pfeiffer, who I yeah. not didn't even know she was uh, a Broadway star. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, I'm in California and it's been COVID and I haven't been aware, but I was like, who is this person? Yeah. Who is she? She's fantastic. So yeah. tell me a little bit about, for you, um, your process in casting, because you are obviously also known for, you know, discovering a lot of talent that we know now as some big movie stars. I so. sure hope that's the case here because Soleil is amazing. Joshua is amazing. Mm -hmm. I could go down the list. It, it, finding them was pivotal in, in me wanting to do the film because I was looking for some somebody who could carry it and also understood it because I, I don't like seeing a period piece when the actors are very modern they don't understand that it's in the body language it's in the hair move it's in the mm -hmm. eyes it's in not just in the words it's in every moment so to find Broadway actors who completely immersed themselves in it and understood it I was like okay I got the right team now so it made it it made it incredibly special for me and my hope is that as I said that they become huge stars what's that thing that you find in someone that you're like you've got it you know I somebody somebody asked me and I shouldn't say this but I'm I'm gonna say because it it's you would you rather work with newcomers than people who've been around and established it's like I'm not gonna sit around waiting for somebody to come out of a trailer or somebody who's having a bad day or need to talk to 50 other people before you mm. that, that to me is just I'm not interested in that I, I love the people who have the hunger and the excitement and the desire. Like I still do every day. I get mm -hmm. up. I'm never. I never have anybody waiting. I'm never an asshole. Never on on set. I when I show up and there's another director, that person's in charge, right? And I'm there. It was driving David Fincher crazy because every time he called me to set, I'd be there already. He's like, somebody has to tell me he's on set. But but I understand what that's like, right? So when I see that thing in people that. That, that spark of, first of all, the talent can be there, but if they have that other part of it, that, that work ethic, that, that willingness to, to uh, be on time and not be any drama, and those people I gravitate toward. Mm -hmm. My father was a lot of terrible things, but what he had was an insane work ethic, and he taught me the measure of, of hard work and what that meant, and how many people, you showing up for or not showing up for, it affects. So I get that fully. How you show up for someone, whether little, big, small, rich, poor, yeah. whatever, is who you are as a person and you've got it. Like, you know, there's like gratitude in that, there's right. all of that, but basically it's just pure respect of someone's time. Yeah, absolutely, and not to mention the gift of the amount of money you're being paid to show mm -hmm. up here that most people won't see in their entire lifetime. You're getting that for one day and you and you still in the trailer, get your ass to the set. Yeah. Speaking of respect, I read that you paid Cicely Tyson a large sum of money for just a single day's work on one of your sets. Is that true? The only reason I mentioned it is because she wrote it in her book, but yes, yes. the woman made $6,000 for Sounder and she was 96 years old when she died. So there was this whole period of many, many years, because she was very selective about what she did. She wouldn't do things that she felt debased black people. Mm -hmm. So she passed up a lot of roles. So I felt I want to make sure that for the rest of your life, you can be okay and be comfortable and not be worried. Can you imagine having that kind of success, being married to Miles Davis? Everybody knows your name and you can't pay the rent. Mm -hmm. I mean, really, 
Mm-hmm. So, so yes, yes. And that's one of the moments that I'm really, really proud of. She was an amazing woman. As, as a director, what's your process? Do you rehearse with the, with the talent again and again and again? Do you like to just do it in the moment? Like, what, what is your process? No, no, we show up on set and we walk through it. I say, here's what I'm seeing, here's what I feel, what do you think? And they're like, uh, you know, I'll hear their opinions, we'll go back and forth for a minute and then, okay, great, let's roll. And it, it helped having a great DP like Brett Pollock, who mm-hmm. understood how I work and how I like to move. He's like, okay, here's how we can get this look in the time frame that you need it to be done. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, it's also a departure for you. Yeah. I mean, I, I hate to say that word because yeah. you, everything's a departure for you. You've done, you know, so much. And I, I should say also, which I didn't mention earlier, was your two New York Times bestselling books yeah. as well. Let's add that to the dossier. Yeah. But this is different. This is different. This is not maybe what people come to expect. Yeah. From I don't you. know if it's a departure. Sure, if it's a return to the original thought, right? right? But but yeah, no, it's totally different, and I don't I don't know um, what that means for many people. If they could re, sometimes it's hard for people to shift their uh, thought process when it comes to a certain thing. Like if you have your lane, that's your lane. Mm-hmm. But my hope is that people would just be open to the story and the movie, and and just let it let go, let it speak to and through you. And as it did me, and I'm hoping that uh, that that's what happens here. Mm -hmm. In this version of a jazz man's blues that fans are going to see, is it the same version that you originally penned in 1995? Or did you end up making alterations to the script? Yeah, exact same one. The only thing that changed was the the location. Because it was Georgia now, because I went to Savannah one weekend and saw these beautiful, uh, oaks with the Spanish moss. I thought, wow, this is the setting for Jasmine. And that's the only thing that changed. So it's pretty much the same story wow. in the cast, but yeah, yeah. Wow. So is it outside of your um, being on location? How did you feel doing that? Did you love it? Um, yeah, my first time loving the, the art of directing. I really appreciated every moment, every shot, every. I knew from the first shot, I was like, okay, this is exactly what I saw in my mind. And to have that happen for me has been rare. So, because again, that twin brain, the producer's like, nope, cut that back, cut that back. No, this this time it was it was taking my time and really settling into it, mm-hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm. And when you see the finished product, do you, are you a little, are you a tortured person over it? Or are you like, that is it, I've done it, I'm moving on? It's what I wanted the, to do. Or you want to go back and be like, ooh, I could tinker, ooh, I could do this. No, I, no, no, no. Once things are done, I let it go. But I, I was the weirdest thing is the last few weeks I've been trying to figure out what is this sadness I have. And I feel like it's grief. Like I've been mm-hmm. grieving something that I've held on to for so long and now it's out in the world. And that's, that's it's like an empty nest. It's like a kid going off to college. So I've been trying to understand that feeling because that was a dream that I had so, for so long. I'm like, okay, what's the next dream? What's the mm-hmm. next thing that you, you're gonna do in the business? So it's like, hmm. What do you hope your audience takes away from the jazz? I, I want, if, if people walk away with the experience of just seeing a great film, then that's it. That's it, there's nothing in the subtext, there's nothing that I'm trying to say deeper than, did it move you? And if it if it inspires someone to actually look at some of the history of what has happened mm-hmm. in this country, I had I had a black person send me a message which I rarely see, but I saw this one saying, "Oh my God, why are you writing this? Can we just do something where there is no struggle?" And it was a younger black person. I'm thinking, and that, and I thought, hmm, because of people like this, you're able to say that, but they didn't have that choice. So if people will walk away with it with just a curiosity of what really happened 
mm-hmm. in this country, mm-hmm. then that would be awesome. Right. It is. Yeah. It is kind of shocking where we are right now. Yeah. That's what's amazing to me is that this piece of art was the same piece of art in 1995. It yeah. is is what people are seeing, and it feels so prescient. I mean, you have such a, a breadth of experience and and diversity in the in the things that you've done. I mean, what do what do you think? differentiates you from other filmmakers? Hmm, that's a very good question. I tell you, I think that the thing that's making people have tremendous success, be it in streaming or on, uh, you know, online or whatever you're doing there and you know, uh, social media, mm-hmm. it's a connection with an audience. And from day one, I've had a tremendous connection with my audience, with my base, and I super serve them. So they've been mm-hmm. extremely supportive, which has allowed me to have the space to to say yes to certain things and no to certain things and walk away to certain deals when they didn't feel right. And all of that is something that, unfortunately, a lot of creators don't have. And I think that if more people had that level of control and that level of support behind them, we would see much, much more creative ideas out there that aren't cut and pasted and edited by studios and other execs and the audience never sees what the actual artists wanted it to be. So uh, it's been my audience that has put me here, for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, your audience is in for a, a treat here because you deal with a lot of complicated uh, yeah. themes here, and I really love the way it came back to the family. There was obviously the outside world mm-hmm. that was so much going on in everybody's life, right? In the outside world, there's so much going on. But how has your own creativity evolved Hmm. since you started because you started it was a struggle right there was no one you did not have a family in it this wasn't something that was an obvious road for you you had to build it brick by brick right I don't think my work ethic has changed at all it's it's still uh, it's it's a hundred miles an hour go 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 uh, but the types of things that I want to do and how I want to do it and the stories that I want to tell and how heavy I want the hand or how over the head I want the message has been um, I've been challenged a lot in my own experiences lately, but I know very much that this is what my audience wants to see. So I vacillate between the two of, of telling the exact story that my audience wants to see, but having the opportunity to run over and do Jazz Man, right? Then going back to, to something that my audience would adore and love, and then running over and trying to do something else maybe set in, in, you know, during World War II. So all of those things... Um, are, are a part of the pie that complicates the path that I have to take. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're growing your audience, yeah. right? Yeah, exactly You right. have to yeah. take your audience yeah. on the journey. Yes. And I imagine your your fans from the very beginning yeah. are still your fans now. Yes, and they will love Jazz Man. They yeah. evolve with you, which, yeah, is, which sure. is really interesting in having such a prolific career. Yeah. Um, and you've met so many people and done so many things. Okay, so Tyler, tell me, who would be at your dream dinner party, living or dead? Of course I'd start with Dr. King. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just, I have so many questions for him. And knowing so many people who knew him, you know, in Atlanta, it would be, it'd be really, really powerful to have him there. Lena Horne, I've always wanted to meet. And it would be a very small party. It's not a whole lot of people that I would, that I would want to be there, but the two of them for sure. And my mother, of course. What yeah. would you serve? It would be Southern soul food. For sure. And if they're dead, it won't matter if they get high blood pressure anyway. So we'll all just eat well. <laughs> we'll all eat well. Yeah. Yeah. What is what is your guilty pleasure in terms of 
of bad habits. You would bring this to me when I haven't had meat in 30 days. You look fantastic, but, uh, by yeah, the way. And now we know. In 30 days, I haven't had meat. But um, not because I'm a vegetarian or vegan, just because I was like, okay, you got to slim down a little bit. But my, I, 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 sweets, I love sweets, cookies, donuts. I just Any kind of bread product. Com comfort food, yeah. Especially when I'm writing, because I'll write and just eat. And I'm like, oh my God, that's good. Mm, mm, that's, mm, that's good too, so yeah. So. People must, anybody you meet has got a, you know, super fan over you like I, I am myself. And I'm sure you get asked a lot of questions and one of them has to be like, what's advice do you have for me? What do you do this? Da, da, da. But what is some of the worst advice you ever got? Ooh, that's gonna be hard for me to measure because I, I, I look at my life as never having any failures because everything that I thought was a failure worked, worked for my good. So even if somebody said, you shouldn't do this or you should do this, and I did it, as awful as it may have been in the time, looking back at it now, it taught me such a valuable lesson to prepare me for exactly where I am now. So I don't know if I could say that there's been any horrible advice. And what advice do you give people that when they are starting out and whatnot now? Depends on what they're asking, because you know, if somebody says to me, I want to be the next you, I say, first thing, listen. No, you be you can be a better you than than trying to be me, right? So it's about finding what where your own voice is, where your own lane is. What is that? And and folks hyper focus on it and super serve that until it serves you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So this season, I'm asking everyone on the podcast for you. What yeah. are your small wins? What are the stuff that you're grateful for? The little wins. Like I was really excited that there was a Dr Pepper outside there uh, earlier today. That's a small kind of shallow win. Um, and also, I'm just. You know, for me, I'm, I'm glad that my my I have two sons, and I'm glad that they've so far had a great week at school, and yeah. everybody's happy and yeah. on time and stuff like that. Just the little things. So what's a small win for you? I love RC, radio control uh, airplanes. Mm -hmm. For me and my son, now he's interested. He wants to learn. So for he and I to sit there for hours flying and I'm teaching him about charging batteries and and how to land and all those Wait, things like, are really amazing. Wait, like little planes? Like yeah, the, yeah, you fly them in the air. Yeah, Is that, that's a huge win for me. Where did you discover that? When did you, I was running in the park one day and I never had a hobby. And uh -huh. I saw a guy flying, I was like, wow, that's really, really cool. So I went and got one and started learning. I crashed so many of them, it was ridiculous. I finally went back to the hobby store. The guy says, you have more money than sense, stop it. So, <laughs> so I finally learned how to fly them and, and it helped me to just relax, because when you're focusing on that plane there, you can't focus on anything else. So being able to pass that on to him is really, really great. And what do the planes look like there? Like biplanes or like yep. jet planes? Biplanes, or jets, 747s, uh, a little Cirrus, all kinds of little planes. All kinds of little planes. Some foam, some uh, balsa, some fiberglass. And you yeah. actually can crash them, obviously, because if you're not paying yeah. attention, they're yeah. going right into a tree so, or something. Yeah, so you have to focus on what you're doing. Now, have you taken to drones or you know drone? Drones is also for people who are younger because you press a button, it goes and it comes back. No, this you actually have to fly. You have to know the technology. So, yeah. Oh my God, this is breaking news. <laughs> it's like Tyler Perry has a hobby, everybody. And guess yeah. what? It's like flying planes. Yeah. Do you have any desire to actually like fly a plane? Well, like Tom Cruise and all those crazy people that fly the big planes? Not Har not like Harrison Ford, but that that's, oh, yeah, that's Ford, another Ford. reason I wanted to, when I started flying them and I, would watch them in the air because I, I was I, I had a very healthy fear of flying. So mm. watching them in the air and realizing they weren't falling apart, it's just the wind blowing them around helped me to understand it. So then I got my pilot's license uh, and started flying myself so that I could get over my fear of flying and now I don't have that fear anymore. Where does the fear of flying come from, do you think? I, 
pr probably just for me, the lack of understanding of what it is. You're going to get in a tube with two things sticking out the side of it with engines in the back. It's going to shoot you across the country. So the lack of understanding of the of the uh, of the engineering of it all was really part of it. But now I get it. Mm -hmm. I had that same thing. I have yeah. anxiety around it too. I mean, I think everybody, a large portion of the public actually does. Yeah. And you try to rationalize. Yeah. But it's true. It's like, for me, I think it's more about I'm not in control. I mm. have to like just let go of it all and I can't, nothing Nothing I'm going to do is going to be able to, yeah. Is going to change it. But yeah. it is, people, a lot of people have a real it's acute healthy. Yeah, it's, a, it's, it's healthy, but it should also make you curious. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I'm so excited for everyone to see uh, this movie, and I love sitting and talking with you. And I Thank have you. to be mindful of your time, otherwise we could just be gabbing on and on and on. Yeah, it feels real, kinds, really comfortable. All kinds of things. Real but, comfortable chat. Thank you. Yeah, Thank but you. I'm so happy you're on Netflix. Thank you. So am I. A Jazz Man's Blues is streaming now on Netflix. Thanks so much for joining me. I'm Krista Smith, your host and creator of the show. Skip Intro is produced and edited by Isabel Arricchio and engineered by Dave Corwin. Special thanks to our coordinator, Alyssa Hillman. Please subscribe, rate, and review Skip Intro wherever you've been listening. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Krista Smith. If you enjoy the podcast, please go to NetflixQ.com for more. That's NetflixQueUE.com. Thank you.